0: Hello, and welcome back to Music for PhDs. Today we're talking to Harry Staphylakis, a contemporary composer who started off in metal bands. Harry is Greek, as you might have guessed from his name, but he was born in Montreal, and we're going to talk about travel stories, his morning routine in New York, his crazy cat, and his piece, Calibrating Friction. It is a totally frantic, kinetic, chaotic-sounding piece, and the painting I did to it kind of has this graffiti tag vibe. Side note, I had some technical difficulties uploading artwork for each individual episode, so while I was hoping you could just look down at your phone and see the finished painting, I think you'll have to head to my website. Links, as always, are in the show notes. Harry's music could be described as full of dissonance and Dr. Kate is back to talk about what that means for your ear. As always, thank you so much for listening and I hope you enjoy this episode of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast. So what's, um, like what's a Typical day in the life of a composer.
1: Well, wow, I can't. I can't speak for the com- the proverbial composer. I can speak for myself. Uh, I, I live in Manhattan, and I happen to live right across from a beautiful park with little hiking trails and a view over the Hudson River and the uh, New Jersey Palisades. So my morning is waking up whenever my cat Bruce wakes me up. His breakfast song is something else. Uh, he, he won't let me sleep. <laughs> Uh, so, once he manages to get me up, I head out, grab my bodega coffee uh, and my tobacco, and start walking around, chain smoking, drinking my coffee, and thinking about the world, uh, listening to music, listening to a podcast, reading a book, whatever it is, until something snaps in me. Whatever I'm listening to, or whatever I'm reading, or whatever I'm thinking about, kind of awakens me further than the coffee has already awoken me. Uh, and I run back to my apartment all the way up my five floor walk up uh, and I start working because it it happens every day. It's ine- it's inevitable and it's amazing how it happens. Sometimes I could be walking for three hours, sometimes it's for half an hour, but it always, that awakening happens and then I jump into the work and it, uh, get into a flow state. And then I can typically heavily interrupted by emails, phone calls, text messages from various people I'm working with or need to be working with, et cetera. And uh, then I fall asleep.
0: I love that morning ritual. That's an, like so predictable and yet so unpredictable at the same time.
1: I love it. One of the great benefits of being an independent composer. I teach two days a week. Besides that, my schedule is my own. So that's a great amount of freedom.
0: Do you spend a lot of time in Greece?
1: My first time was back in December. I had a commission for an orchestra there uh, and they brought me out for the premieres on my birthday and a couple days after. And, you know, of course my family comes from there. You might've guessed from my name, but I had never been, I was never sent as a kid. Uh, We were too poor or whatever. Um, So this was an important homecoming for me. Uh, I met a ton of family I had never known. Uh, Yeah. So I have like two huge clans in Greece now that I'm really tight with. And then I repeated the whole thing in June again with my mother, who hadn't been back to Greece since she moved 50 years ago.
0: And that was, so just December and June, like, so just within the last, like, 10 months or so, really? Yeah,
1: twice in the past year, oh. I've done incredible Greece road trips.
0: Are you, is is there going to be music that comes out of those trips?
1: In, in both cases, the excuse was work. So I had concerts for both of these things that brought me out there, and then I turn. As I always do, I turn the, the professional engagement into some kind of uh, uh, vacation slash exploration adventure.
0: Oh, yeah. I think I, I meant more in terms of composing, I guess. Like, you oh. had this big sort of homecoming journey, and uh, it was your first time, and you had all these experiences. Like, is that have you written anything to sort of... Um, 100%, share?
1: yes. Uh, immediately when I came back in January, uh, I was incredibly inspired by the whole experience. I mean, it was really moving. Like one of the first stops that my friend and I took after I had my concerts in Athens and Thessaloniki is we, we drove out of Athens and ended up in ancient Delphi. That was like our gateway to the adventure. So here we are on the side of Mount Parnassus in a, you know, 3000 year old uh, ancient religious site uh, that, and it struck me that one of the um, inscriptions on the Temple of Apollo, where the Oracle of Delphi was stationed, was, uh, sefton, know thyself, a kind of admonition to anybody coming to seek, seeking answers that m- make sure you know yourself and what you're asking before you ask it, which was a perfect metaphor for the fact that as I we continued on the road afterwards on the way to Patra to discover my family background yeah. and to okay. hopefully meet my my extended family uh, and to discover myself in some way uh, that essentially this was about me knowing myself. So when I came back, I wrote uh, – my, my next commission was uh, for a piano trio and dancers, for uh, periapsis Music and dance in New York, uh, and the piece became all about that, about Hunothi Sefton, about Know Thyself. Uh, we ended up having this beautiful production of the collaborative piece called Oracle, of course, Um okay. And then, yeah, I think pretty much every piece since then has been in some way influenced by that experience uh, and hearing the music that I heard there and the kind of more personal experiences I had. I've now established relationships and partnerships with wonderful musicians there. So we're already planning projects for years ahead that are inspired by a lot of these ideas, especially the oracular thing. That's really
0: fantastic. Mm-hmm. Will, will they be sort of, um, will your metal influence kind of go into those projects or do you think it'll have a different sound?
1: My metal influence goes into everything because okay. that's how I think about music. Uh, yeah, it varies how explicit it is and, and how on the nose I go with it. But definitely just my sense of time, my sense of rhythm, of groove, always makes it in there somehow uh, in, a, in a metal fashion. Mostly metal people realize it. Like they mm-hmm. hear a piece of mind, they're like, oh yeah, that's totally metal. And, <laughs> and classical people who don't know metal are like, what? What's metal? I didn't hear that.
0: So it's kind of like, uh, if you know it, you can, you can pick it up. Exactly. Tell me about uh, Calibrating Friction. What's the backstory to this piece?
1: Yeah, Calibrating Friction. Uh, this is a piece... That was written for the Aspen Contemporary Ensemble when I was a fellow at the uh, Aspen Music Festival uh, back in 2016. And the project was uh, for a six-player ensemble, a mixed ensemble, generally called uh, Pierrot Ensemble. A couple of woodwinds, a couple of strings, piano and percussion. It's almost like a, a micro orchestra. And I had already written a couple pieces in this kind of genre, this kind of ensemble. And this time I was keen to push it further, particularly to push further my metal classical fusion that I'd been developing ever since I came to the classical world. Uh, and so I wanted, to, for instance, the, instead of Typical kind of a classical or contemporary music percussion. I wanted it to be drum set, like metal drum set. <laughs> I wanted to treat the rest of the instruments like a metal band playing guitar riffs, that kind of thing. So I wrote this piece like a metal piece, but for a classical chamber ensemble.
0: So you were you were at Aspen and uh, they kind of gave you some free reign direction with this group. I'm just curious, like what what inspired this piece like were you did you have like a morning walk in aspen and then kind of come like racing back to your room to (laughs) (laughs)
1: um actually well the piece was written before aspen because by the the time i got to the festival it had to be ready to be so uh, you know i'd have to look back at my sketchbooks i take very meticulous notes of my creative process and when ideas came uh, were born and you know i date it and write where where i wrote came up with the idea. You know, I should have thought to bring it out because I have, you know, of course, a bookshelf full of them. But I don't know whether the concept, the kind of more thematic concept came first or a little later in the process. But ultimately, um, I had met Salman Rushdie, the great, the great writer, oh, wow. uh, in 2012 when I received an award from the American Academy of Arts and Letters. And he, I had... Uh, I was a fan of his work and had gotten deeper into it in the, in the following years after meeting him. Uh, And at some point I came across a quote of his free societies are societies in motion. And with motion comes tension, dissent, friction, free people strike sparks. And those sparks are the best evidence of freedom's existence. That was such a beautiful encapsulated thought. And also really jived with my idea of how, An ensemble can work and certainly how progressive metal works in terms of this friction of different temporal layers grinding against each other. So kind of taking that as a larger thematic idea, started getting into the idea of kinetic friction, uh, friction between solid surfaces and fluid layers, how that might manifest in a musical environment and a musical score. Uh, I don't know if I'm getting too much into nerdy details here, but-
0: Go go deep, man. That's, that's what the podcast for is.
1: <laughs> I, I mean, as much as I'm an artist, I love uh, maths and sciences, so often ideas coming from that side of the world from the stem world if you will uh tend to kind of ignite my inspiration and my passion and then tying it together with more social thinking so then taking again these ideas of uh friction uh, in in various types of materials uh started to ruminate on the f- types of frictions inherent in family units and communities and nations and different kind of social systems and how uh with the right degree of friction, we end up moving together and uh, other times it creates conflict and we're sliding and grinding against each other. So yeah, I thought those were beautiful uh, uh, metaphors uh, or ideas for the music I wanted to write. And besides that, it was, you know, musical inspiration. I'd been listening to a lot of Periphery and Tesseract and Meshuggah, you know, c- contemporary progressive metal bands that, uh, that I was obsessed with. And boy, am I an obsessive listener. We can talk about that <laughs> later, maybe. Uh, so that stuff was in my head, along with all the new music that I've been absorbing and all the concerts I go to. Uh, and this piece came out, which is going to be the title piece, uh, the title track on my upcoming album, on New Amsterdam Records, oh. Incidentally. That's all about metal meets classical. So I'm That's really That's awesome.
0: That. Oh, man. Okay. Tell, tell me about this upcoming album.
1: Well, yeah, it's, it's going to be, um, we're looking at uh, early uh, first quarter 2021, uh, since right now I'm in the pre-production process. Uh, I'm working with a uh, New York City-based contemporary ensemble, uh, Contemporaneous, uh, with Canadian uh, Montreal, New York guitarist and producer Adam Petrikowski, also known as Van Tilburg, uh, Canadian drummer Ben Reimer, uh, and uh, New York engineer uh, Silas Brown, so we have this... M- massive awesome team that spans both the classical and kind of pop uh, slash metal worlds. And this is my first portrait album. So I have a bunch of recordings coming out in the next year on other artists albums, but this is my definitive statement of taking my most metal influenced chamber music and reworking it and producing it as if it were a metal album. Uh, So yeah, I'm really excited about that. And new Amsterdam records is like the, the, new music record label that focuses on uh, stylistic fusion, particularly between the high and low arts, if you will, or pop and classical. Uh, So it's really kind of an ideal uh, coming together of elements at just the right time for me to be able to say, yeah, this is me, this is my music, this is my voice, and these are some of the best musicians and uh, producers I've worked with and kind of packaging it all in one thing.
0: How do you see calibrating friction fitting into your your other works. Do you have a favorite child?
1: Ooh. Um,
0: or, or where do you see it sitting?
1: Of course, on the album, the five tracks that are going on the album are all in some way my favorite child. Otherwise, I wouldn't be going through the effort and insane expense uh, and time investment to get them on the album. In a sense, Calibrating Friction was kind of a linchpin in that Although I'd been consciously and subconsciously bringing my metal uh, baggage into my classical composition since, whatever, 2007 or whenever it is that I started writing you know, explicitly classical works, and I'd been refining my way of doing it and exploring different ways of making bringing those metal elements into the classical sound world, uh, I guess calibrating friction was felt at least at the time, like I kind of nailed it in an instinctive way. I wasn't forcing it or struggling with it it kind of just came out and I was super unselfconscious about it like it starts with this explosion of very metal stuff then it goes into a very kind of classical meets greek music section for a while Then it ends with like a two-minute, extremely quiet, laid-back piano solo. Every phase of that kind of tells me, kind of looking back at it as a, my own producer, if you will, or as my own listener, that... There was a confidence that went into the artistic decisions behind it and kind of lack of second guessing, which is a constant problem for a composer. And I feel like since then, that's been the case with almost every piece I've written. Like I've kind of fallen into this relaxed flow that... I just know the piece is working and there's no reason to question it. And sometimes it's super simple and sometimes it's super complex and that's fine. Whatever the music wants to do, that's what it'll do. So I think calibrating friction was important in that process for me.
0: It almost sounds like the moment where you go from learning a language to feeling like you're fluent in it, like you can get yourself through any situation.
1: That's a beautiful way to put it. Yeah,
0: Calibrating friction was an incredibly fun piece to paint too. The music is just so energetic. I mean, I think I got paint up on the walls. It's on the window. It's just, it was so much fun. Originally, I wanted it to be all in black and white. I wanted to get at this urban kind of gritty feel. But I also felt like it needed color. It needed these pops, these highlights. So there are little bits of kind of an orangey yellow woven in throughout. It's got a bit of a graffiti tag feel, and I really like that. I think it captures... Some of that friction that Harry talked about. Um, so I have a quick lightning round. It's just for fun.
1: Well, oh, I'm terrible at lightning rounds, by the way. I talk way too much. We'll <laughs> right, try. I'll try.
0: Are you a cocktail guy or a beer guy?
1: Cocktail. I love cocktails.
0: Uh, mountains or ocean?
1: Mountains with a view of the ocean.
0: <laughs> Best of all. Um, Taylor Swift or Katy Perry?
1: Oh, I love both, especially since Max Martin has produced them both. So, so I'd actually say my answer is Max Martin, the ma- the mastermind behind them.
0: Um, are you an early bird or a night owl?
1: Mm, both and neither.
0: Okay. You want to like elaborate on that?
1: <laughs> <laughs> no, I wanted to leave that in double size. Um, I I work best in the morning, sure. like the earlier the better, but I suck at waking up. The only benefit is I now have a 13-month-old cat who does wake me up very early in the morning to eat, which is great because I work great in the morning. I love the night, but I'm really unproductive at night.
0: I feel like you should do a a piece inspired by Bruce's morning breakfast call.
1: Oh, believe me. I record him regularly and his various (laughs) sounds and songs, and I will use them.
0: Who would you most like to go for a cocktail with? They can be alive or dead.
1: Carl Sagan. And oh, I have to say, uh, Christopher Hitchens, just because I feel like that would be the funnest conversation.
0: Oh, sir, you're gonna have to uh, fill me in on Christopher Higgins Hitchens,
1: Hitchens. Christopher Hitchens, a uh, great intellectual journalist, writer uh, he he came particularly to prominence in the 2000s uh, as part of the new atheist movement, along with people like Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris. Uh, and he was just like this incredibly witty quick as a whip, uh, and highly erudite, like an encyclopedia of knowledge British dude who took on formal debates with major thinkers, politicians, religious leaders, and so on, and was known for eviscerating people just with his language.
0: Nice. Kind of like a like a present day um, Oscar Wilde type figure?
1: Kind of thing, yeah. yeah, yeah.
0: What do you have upcoming in terms of concerts or releases and things like that?
1: I just had a massive premiere of like symphonic length song cycle for bass baritone and orchestra sung by Philip Sly and performed with the Winnipeg Symphony. That was a huge project that had been in the works for like four years and is essentially kind of my first symphony, although I'm not calling it that. Two albums just came out. Literally the same day, uh, a week or two ago, on October 25th, one uh, by uh, pianist Jenny Lin that features works by piano works by Iceberg New Music composers. Iceberg New Music is my composers' collective in New York City, uh, and we all wrote these uh, virtuosic piano pieces for her. So that album's out on Sona Luminous. Uh, the same day, the Montreal based guitar duo Adam Ciccolitti and Steve Cowan released an album on Analecta called Focus featuring my piece focus. I have uh, an album coming out I think next year with a Norwegian radio orchestra featuring my piece Brittle Fracture for Orchestra Uh, and oh yeah in January the huge thing is uh, the Winnipeg New Music Festival that I co-curate as part of my work with the Winnipeg Symphony Uh, so it's a week long festival uh, of Featuring contemporary music of all kinds, orchestra music, chamber music, vocal music, uh, lots of awesome music. I have a piece on there uh, bringing the awesome jazz slash metal composer, pianist Tigran Hamasyan.
0: As always, links to all of these shows and releases are up on my website. And the album, Calibrating Friction, will be out sometime in 2021. So give Harry a follow on Twitter or Instagram, keep tabs on him, and he'll let you know when that album is ready to drop. So in the first episode, we talk about how music is multi-sensory, how the things you see and feel with your body affect how you hear music. And in episode two, we talk about how your culture and past experiences affects how you feel about that music. Today, we're going to dive deeper and talk about how the structure of your ear captures sounds. It turns out there is some biology to why things are consonant or
2: dissonant. So, Dr. Kate, tell me what happens when your ears hear something. Well, if you make a sound, say you pluck the string of a guitar, the string vibrates, and those vibrations make the air vibrate too. So the vibrating air is the sound wave that travels to your ear. Sound waves vibrate your eardrum, and then small bones in your middle ear transmit the vibrations to your inner ear. Your inner ear is shaped like a snail, and it has hair cells inside of it that work like motion sensors. They detect sound waves and send signals up to your brain, so that your ear and your brain work together to decide what the sounds are and whether you like them.
0: So how pleasant or how likable something sounds, is that
2: consonant? Yeah, that's part of it. The frequencies of sound waves that we perceive as consonant are ones that tend to fit together really well. If we play a note, and then we play the same note but exactly one octave higher, it sounds like this. The high note is exactly twice the frequency of the low note, and those two sounds are consonant together. When notes are one octave apart, and the frequency of the higher note is exactly double the frequency of the lower note, it makes a two-to-one ratio, and that's pleasant to experience. In the last episode, we talked about how major chords are mostly consonant, and that might play a part in why Western cultures have learned to associate consonants and happiness. But even babies can tell the difference between consonant and dissonant music and they tend to prefer consonants, too.
0: So why would babies prefer the consonant sounds?
2: When two notes sound dissonant, their frequencies don't have those simple relationships like two to one. So a famous example is an interval that musicians call a tritone, and it sounds like this. The frequency relationship for the two notes in a tritone is 45 to 32. More complicated frequency relationships mean that your ear perceives those sounds as being rough instead of smooth. That's because the sound waves don't line up as nicely, and the conflicting waves are hard for your hair cells to process. That friction, or that experience of auditory roughness, is much less pleasant. That being said, things that are less pleasant still get used in music. Like we talked about last episode, music is very cultural. As cultures change, your expectations change. For example, Rite of Spring was a new composition that premiered in Paris in 1913. It used tritones, and there was dissonance between unusual instruments like the flute and the bassoon. Legend has it, The audience was so unhappy that they rioted in the theater. But more recently, tritones have become increasingly popular, especially in contemporary genres like pop, rock, and metal. Jimi Hendrix and Metallica have used tritones, and there are tritones in the theme songs for TV shows like The Simpsons and South Park.
0: A big thank you to Harry and Dr. Kate for being such awesome podcast guests. As always, I have full show notes up on my website with links to more of Harry's music, his upcoming concerts, and of course the research that Dr. Kate talks about. You can also check out the full-size painting that I did to Calibrating Friction. It's up on my website as well. So if you enjoyed listening, learning, and looking at some artwork, please hit subscribe, leave a review, and tune in for the next episode. We'll be talking to Becca Sims on how she incorporates live electronics into orchestral music. I am really excited to talk to her and to share it with all of you, so I hope you join us for the next episode of Music for PhDs, the art project disguised as a podcast.